Let us worship the Lord together in spirit and truth. That truth is found in the Scripture. We have read it aloud. We have prayed according to it. We have sung the psalms and the hymns of the faith based upon it. Now we will open the word of the Lord together. Mark 14 and verse 53 through verse 65. Picking up where we left off last week. Mark 14 verses 53 through 65. Hear the word of the Lord. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about their testimony, about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent. And made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. In Romans chapter 13, you may recall that the apostle Paul speaks of human government. And he says that human government is instituted by God. It it has its place in the world by God's decree, if you will. And though it's mixed with corruption, it's given authority to establish and to enforce moral and just laws and to act, as Paul says, as an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And authority should, in this sense, be respected, says Paul, since he does not bear the sword in vain. But it's only a delegated authority, tasked with operating under God's universal reign. And you say, why do you speak of human government? Well, it's important to remember Especially when we consider Zechariah in chapter 14 and verses 7 through 9. That prophecy that's been quoted in Mark's gospel and in some of the others as well. 
When Jesus and his disciples, you'll remember, are in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he's betrayed. Our Lord referred to it. It speaks of the Christ as the shepherd of God's people. His sheep. And there the Lord says in Zechariah, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against or upon the little ones. Now that's a clear reference as we understand it to God the Son. As the shepherd and God the Father, declaring that he will intentionally execute his wrath on the Son on behalf of his people, and he will use the sword of human government to do that. The Son himself does not deserve the Father's wrath, but we sinners do. Jesus, the perfect Son, endures the penalty for our sin. The Good Shepherd, as Jesus says in the Gospel of John, lays down His life for the sheep. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, It is for our sake that God made His Son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so when the sword is turned against the shepherd, the sheep are then scattered. We saw that as we looked in Mark's gospel earlier. Jesus and his apostles, his other disciples with him in the garden and the betrayer comes. And he comes with a crowd with swords and clubs and torches. And they seek Jesus. The sword turned against the shepherd. God allows the church to endure tribulation until his son returns in glory to finally judge the nations. Zechariah's prophecy goes on to say in chapter 14. And as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 25. At that time at the end of the age. He will finally and ultimately separate the sheep from the goats. That is, his people from the rest of the world. Now that's the providential working of the Father to redeem a people for his name through his Son. Just as is foretold in the Old Testament scripture and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so it made no sense to the apostles because they did not understand the Scripture. Though Jesus had been teaching them repeatedly that these things must take place. They did not understand Jesus' betrayal. They did not understand His arrest. And so, taken off guard, caught off guard I should say, Though they were willing and ready to draw their swords and defend Christ there in the garden. Though they had claimed, as Peter so boldly did, he would never forsake him. He would die with him. And they all agreed 
Nonetheless, Jesus said, you will all like sheep be scattered. And Peter, you will actually deny three times that you know me. Jesus asked his people then, and Jesus asked his people now, only that we believe in him, no matter what may happen subsequently as we suffer for his name. But do not take your eyes off of Christ. Do not forget who it is that is your shepherd. And our faith is strengthened by that. Your faith isn't strengthened when you think you need to take up the sword. When you need somehow to step outside of the will of God to defend the work of God and the redemptive purpose and plan of God that is in Christ. God doesn't call us to do that. He calls us to proclaim Christ. And to remember these things, to remember who Christ is and remember what He has taught us, but to remember what He's endured for us to bring us into His fold. So here in this passage, in verses 53 through 65, Mark gives us the Apostle Peter's eyewitness perspective of the initial blows, if you will, that the great shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep endures for us. He receives these initial blows and Peter's there to to see it. Peter saw our Lord's trial before the Jewish council. He heard Christ's confession before that council of who he actually is. And he saw and heard the council's condemnation. And these are the things I want us to look at together this morning as we see that God strikes his shepherd as foretold in Scripture while Peter can only watch Jesus suffer as our Savior and begin to absorb the wrath of God for us. The wrath of God according to God's law that we all as sinners deserve. Let's look first in verse 53. Peter's eyewitness perspective. This trial was before what we call the Jewish, or what Scripture calls the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. The assembly of the elders also as it is known in Luke 22 verse 66. It is the whole council as Mark will call it in verse 55 here. And we are told that it's comprised of the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, the Chief priests being the hierarchy of the temple, if you will. They controlled the temple proper and the worship and all that went on politically and otherwise there. The elders of the people are made up in part by the chief priests and in part by the scribes, but they are also um, prominent family heads of the nation that are somehow selected and appointed to represent in this way. Only some priests involved in that, only some scribes, as I said, but the scribes themselves are scholars of the Old Testament Scripture, and they're mostly Pharisees. So you kind of get an idea of this group before which Jesus is brought. In the following verses, we 
see more about them and more about what they're doing. But we're told here initially that they're in a courtyard. And Peter, with the guards, is there in the courtyard and he's entered undetected. This courtyard probably is sort of the middle ground between the, the dwellings of Annas, who was the former high priest and who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the present high priest. And then Caiaphas has his residence there, maybe some other family dwellings, but there's this common courtyard. So you can picture in your mind that setting. This is before daylight, the pre-dawn hours. John 18, verses 13 through 24, tell us that Jesus is first questioned by Annas, and then he's taken over to Caiaphas. And that's where the primary investigation of Jesus is conducted. But none of this is official. This is an unofficial court. They've called Jesus there so that they might, in this very irregular, highly irregular way, in both time and place, they want to question Jesus, intimidate Jesus, find something with which they can accuse Jesus and condemn him. Luke's gospel mentions their official public session that will be a little later at daybreak in the marketplace near the temple, which is in all likelihood where it occurred. But that was public. This was private. Shouldn't have taken place. Very unethical. Very much against the law of Moses. But nonetheless, because they had nothing with which to accuse Jesus that would stick, they have to try and force something here. Agree on something. Because Jesus has to go. He must die. But he must die, as the scripture tells us, as a sacrifice for our sins. Not as Caiaphas will say, he must die for the sake of the nation. But he didn't understand, the Bible tells us, that of which he spoke. He meant Jesus must, must die so the Romans won't come and take away our place in our nation. But he actually spoke in the providence of God as the high priest. Jesus must die for the people. According to scripture. As the Lamb of God. But Peter had followed him at a distance. He's sitting with the guards. He's warming himself at the fire we're told. And at this point. As I said before. He's undetected. No one knows who he is. So he has an unhindered view. An unhindered ear. Unhindered thoughts. And he can take in what is, is happening at that moment. And so he stays as close as possible. Full access to what is being said and done. He's surely still trying to hold to his promise of not deserting Jesus. But it's here that he will realize just how weak he is and just how strong Christ is. The Lord is. And why Jesus has come to that moment. Though he won't grasp it fully, he's beginning to see. Peter's weakness 
earlier predicted by Jesus, will shortly be revealed under close scrutiny in the next passage after this. But that brings us to the trial in verse 55 and following. The point of the council gathering before daybreak, as we said, was to find something to accuse Jesus with that's worthy of death. And they're looking for some testimony against Jesus. And so they've gathered these witnesses, not reliable witnesses, mind you. Scoundrels, probably. Anyone they could bribe to say they heard Jesus speak of this or that or do this or that, that they might somehow piece a story together and find something to make an accusation. Mosaic law required the testimony of at least two or more witnesses for any crime, but especially for a capital crime. If you're going to put someone to death, you better make sure, because you're going to be the one, says the law of Moses, that lays your hand on them first. And if you lie about that, you're to suffer the same fate that you thought they were going to get. The council had no authority under Rome to actually apply capital punishment at that time. They needed something to justify killing Jesus, to satisfy the Jewish people, stir the crowd, create some pressure on Pontius Pilate so that he might sentence Jesus and have him executed. Since Jesus was sinless, he was innocent of any violation in accord with God's righteous standards. So when they brought the witnesses, they found nothing. They found no respectable, reputable testimony. They found none, says Mark. And though many bore false witness against him, their testimony just did not agree. Because our Lord was truly above reproach. Think about that. Truly above reproach. Remember that Judas had said in the previous passage when they came, the crowd with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus, he said, I'm going to betray him to you. I'll, I'll, I'll note who he is in the darkness of night. I'll go to him and I'll give him a kiss. He's the one. He is the man. You seize him and lead him away under guard. And so here's the man. Later, Pilate will declare to the people after he's examined him and sent Jesus to Herod and then Jesus has come back to Pilate and examined him and found no fault in Christ. He'll put him before the people and he'll say, Behold the man! Who is this man? This is the man. Christ Jesus, our Lord. You can find no fault with him because there is none. Sinless life. Can you imagine growing up as one of his siblings in a household and Jesus never does anything wrong? Parents, I know you've had some of your children say, you never punish them, right? All you ever do is 
point to what I've done. You never spank them. You never punish them. You never ground them. I wonder how much that was said in Joseph and Mary's household as Jesus was a young man, a child, and a young man. Christ is sinless. That's why they can't find anything wrong with him. He never did anything that was contrary to the law of God. From the heart, he did that. In fullness, he did that. Here's something to think about. You have not. I have not. There has never been ever anywhere, in any place, in any time, from any nation, tribe, or tongue, a person that ever was like Jesus. In fact, you'll remember at one point the Jewish leaders sent the guards to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and they said, why didn't you bring him? No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like him. Such gracious words, such powerful words, such truthful words, such a truthful life. Hard to imagine. Hard to grasp. We confess that Christ was sinless. We speak of Christ being sinless. We sing of our Lord Jesus being sinless. We know that's true. But do we ever really think about that? Meditate on that? What what should that, if you do that, what would that drive you to do? Mourn your sin. Repent of your sin. Look to Christ in faith. This is the man. This is the Son of God whom the Father in heaven said audibly at His baptism, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear Him. And I say all that about Christ to emphasize that no matter how much they bear witness against Him, they have nothing. And no doubt Psalm 27 came to mind. I'd like to read a portion of that for you. Psalm 27 and verses 11 through 14. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Our Lord knew the Psalms inside and out. He would have known that. He would have thought those words, prayed those words. Verses 13 and 14 of Psalm 27 I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Jesus believed that. But God was treating His Son as though He were one of us. A sinner. Guilty. Deserving of death. And Jesus, though the truly righteous man, is now abandoned by God to his enemies. The malicious witnesses that Psalm 35 talks about. Who repaid him evil for good. He did nothing to deserve this. 
And, and why isn't God stepping in? Why is he letting this happen to his son? Because God had said, this is my good shepherd. And now arise, old sword, and strike the shepherd. And let the sheep be scattered. In verses 57 through 59, we see they finally resort to twisting Christ's words. Jesus cleansed the temple twice, you'll remember. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention the first, but John does. He tells us about that cleansing of the temple early in Jesus' ministry. And when he cleansed that temple, he said, Destroy this temple, and I will build it again in three days. And there we're told by John that he wasn't speaking of the physical temple that Herod had built in Jerusalem at that time, that they were all standing in, that Jesus had just cleansed. He was speaking of his own body, and it was after he was raised that they understood that. So the false witnesses are referring to that. In fact, this some people want to say there's uh, really no, no way to know if John's talking of another cleansing. Maybe he just is out of chronological order speaking of that final cleansing in the Passion Week when Jesus is there for the final time in Jerusalem and facing the cross. But when Mark and Matthew and Luke make reference to these false witnesses and what they accuse Jesus of, they're corroborating what John said. So we do have two cleansings, one at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, one at the end of his ministry. But that's not the point. The point is that they are saying Jesus is going to tear down this physical temple. He said he would do it. Mark gives one variation. The other gospel or synoptic writers give another variation of what they said. None of it was true. Jesus was speaking of his own body. So the false witnesses are just misquoting. Maybe intentionally, in all likelihood intentionally. Maybe they just couldn't remember everything he said since it was some three years prior to that. At least from John's account. But listen, God was present in Christ in a way that was only foreshadowed in that temple on Mount Zion. Little did they know that they are speaking of Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling with his people. That's why the shepherd has to receive these blows. That's why it will ultimately lead to the cross. And that's why the sheep will be scattered, because now everything moves away from that physical temple and the reality is there. The foreshadowing pointed to Christ, but, but Jesus is there. The words they try to twist even still point to Christ. And they didn't understand what he meant in the first place. We're told that even in that, their testimony did not agree. So they're, they're striking out. There's nothing that they can say 
to bring a credible accusation against Jesus. But that brings us to Jesus' confession then. Up until this point, he had said nothing. And so the high priest says, you know, what is this they're saying against you? Do you have nothing to say? I don't know about you. If people are just repeatedly accusing me falsely, I got something to say. You probably do as well. That's our inclination. Jesus calmly endures all of it. He knows it's not true. And he knows it's not the time to speak. Remember, he says and does only that which pleases the Father. And so when the high priest says, do you have no answer? Jesus keeps a tight lip. Accusations unsubstantiated. Jesus remains silent, Mark tells us. No answer. As Isaiah 53, 7 foretold, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The shepherd now is like one of the sheep that he may lay down his life for the sheep. He allows himself to be carried along to be moved along in the providence of the Father in heaven to this point and ultimately to the cross. So with no other option, now the high priest puts Jesus under oath. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed? That's his question to Jesus. Now, because Jesus did what is right when he's put under oath, he answers. And he answers truthfully. I am. I am. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the anointed one of God foretold in the scripture. I am the one you say you're looking for, but not in the way you think I ought to be. I am the son of the blessed, which was just another way for them not to mention the name of God for fear that they would break the third commandment and take God's name in vain. So they would refer to God as the blessed. So are you the son of God? Mostly referring to the fact that the son of God, the Christ would be the son of God. The Jewish leaders rejected and resisted Jesus as not meeting their expectations of the Messiah. And so they thought, well, we're going to force him to say that he is because all that he's taught and all that he's done, all that he's claimed, either explicitly or implicitly, is that he is the Christ. So we're going to force him to claim that he is and we're going to say that's blasphemy. And that's exactly what they did. Because like Judas, Jesus wasn't what they thought he should be. And Jesus makes clear that he's the Christ as in Daniel's prophecy. Remember Daniel chapter 7? 
They're saying, we know you claim to be the Messiah, the son of the blessed. We don't believe that. So are you? And Jesus says, I am. In fact, in Matthew and Luke, I believe, also, Jesus says it more indirectly, like, so you say, or you say that I am. It's to say, not like you think, but here is who I am as the Christ. And he makes reference to Daniel chapter 7. I am and the Son of Man, you will see, seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Remember in Daniel chapter 7, there's the Ancient of Days. God and He reigns and then appearing before Him is one like the Son of Man, who is clearly Himself God and He receives power and a kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. I am the Christ, but not like you think. I'm the Christ of Scripture. And by implication, that's why you don't believe in me, because you don't believe the Scripture. He's the incarnate God, the one who set aside His heavenly glory, who was born in the likeness of men, who humbled Himself in obedience to the Father in heaven, even to the point of death on the cross, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Jesus rose from death. He ascended back to heaven at God's right hand, as we declared in the confession this morning. And He will return in power and glory. That's who Jesus confessed He was. Do you believe that? Here is the man. Unlike you, He is sinless. And He says, I am. This Christ. That's who he confessed to be. Very quickly, let's look finally at the council's condemnation. In these final verses. This is the Christ that the Jews refused. Their leaders, the very ones who should have known well from Scripture the true identity of Messiah rejected the Son of God and they did this with utter contempt. Look at what they say. Look at what they do. The high priest says, enough! He tears his clothes. He rends his garment. That very Old Testament expression of, of bewilderment, horror, sorrow. This is something awful that's happening. Blasphemy. Speaking evil of God. Wow. That's, that's pretty rich, isn't it? Coming from the people that ought to know. Blasphemy. Rather than Jesus speaking the truth about God, the high priest in the council says, Your words are evil. Doesn't that kind of harken back to the unpardonable sin? When they said, everything you do, you do by the power of Satan. And Jesus said, no, I do that by the power of the Spirit of God. And you best be careful what you say about that. 
Jesus is deserving of death, they say together. The high priest says, you heard him, what do you think? He must die. And so they conduct their trial, this false court of wicked men, most of all, most all of them at least. Because it says some of the council members then proceed to express their disdain and hatred for Christ by spitting on him, covering his face, and striking him with their fists. We're also told that likewise the guards received him into custody with blows. They struck him with their fists as well. So this is the, these are the initial blows that Jesus, the good shepherd, receives. Unjustly condemned. Unjustly condemned by a corrupt government, no doubt. But that government was under God's sovereign control. It was nonetheless His sword raised against His shepherd. God did this. Jesus was not the victim of circumstance. This was part of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God decreed long before. Before the foundation of the world, the Lamb of God would be slain. And these are the first blows. He's ultimately struck by God as if he were a lawbreaker, like one of us, worthy of the punishment. The good shepherd, however, willingly, knowingly, begins to lay down his life for the sheep. Wow, what an eyewitness view. Peter sees all of this. Can you imagine what's going on in Peter's mind? But we too can see for ourselves. We can see that only Christ, the Son of God, from those initial blows all the way to the cross, only He was willing and only He was able to endure the necessary wrath of God for our sin. And that's at the heart of the gospel. The good news is that although the bad news is we're sinners worthy of death, condemned under the law of God with no hope, God, in grace, sends His Son to endure what we should endure. This is just a foretaste. This is just the beginning of sorrows, if you will, for what Christ will endure shortly. Concerning God's suffering servant, and that's really a theme in Mark, going back to Isaiah's prophecy as I mentioned earlier. But Isaiah also says in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him, that is the suffering servant, that shepherd. He's laid on him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 3.18 notes the reason. Listen to what Peter says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he may bring us to God. So the writer of Hebrews reminds us to be looking to Jesus, that founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God, might I add, for all who will trust in him. Do you? Well, you know, the whole point of every gospel, even though John and his gospel is the only one that says it, the whole point of every gospel is so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. So place your faith in Christ. Don't be like Peter and the other apostles, misunderstanding Christ was gracious with them, as I said last week. He'll be gracious to you. Understand why Jesus really came. Understand who He really is and how you, compared to Him, you are nothing. You can't save yourself. You can't sanctify yourself. You can't serve God all by yourself. You can't bring the kingdom in by yourself. God does that for you through Christ. So remember the words of our Lord Jesus. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What a thought. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us on a daily basis to forget that apart from Christ we are nothing we are just branches as Jesus said in John 15 placed into the vine which is Christ so that we might produce the fruit you desire but unless we're in him we're nothing We didn't place ourselves there. You did. If indeed our faith is in Christ this day, we have that assurance. Not because of ourselves, but because of who Jesus is and what He endured. Our Good Shepherd, receiving these blows all the way to the cross and being raised from the dead and ascending to Your right hand, And though we be scattered, though we may, for our faith in Him, be persecuted by government and people, we know He's at your right hand. We know He reigns. We know your kingdom is present. And we know that He will return. As we continue on, As pilgrims in this world, help us keep our eyes fixed on Christ. Help us remember what He's endured for us. Our good shepherd for the sheep. It's wonderful to know we are in that flock. Your flock, O Father. Help this church, help the elders. Help all of us who are a part of this congregation. Rest there. 
find our peace and our comfort in Jesus Christ, our Lord, the man, the good shepherd, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.